0: We're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together now. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open your Bibles up. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one under the chairs. We'll be on page 31 in the Black Bibles today. And I'm a little red. My legs are a little shaky because I hiked 10 miles with my wife yesterday. Yes, that is crazy, 10 miles. But it was to celebrate our anniversary. We've been married 28 years now. Isn't that awesome? So... One of the things that's been really beautiful as we've been married for 28 years is kind of started off with, this girl is hot and she loves Jesus, right? It was very simple. I'm attracted to her and she loves Jesus. Like that's the the basic qualifications for marriage. Then I went to my pastor and I was like, hey, I, you know, I'm I'm interested in this girl. He, He kind of walked me through biblical character. Like this is the kind of wife you want, a godly woman. I was like, all right, check, check, check. Okay, we got married, um, after 28 years now, I can also say she's my best friend. And so I just want to encourage you that that's a blessing of continuing to choose to love and the ups and downs of uh, romance going up and down and life being hard one month and being great the next. Continue to choose to love. I just want to encourage you to do that. Um, Jesus chose to love us. Jesus gave himself for us, and that's the model for us in marriage uh, so I just want to give thanks for my wife for the way that she continues by grace to love me, despite how difficult I can be sometimes. Um, so I want to spend some time in the text. We're going to continue our ancient faith series. So if you're new this week, we're glad you're here. What we're doing for the summer is following the outline of Hebrews chapter 11 that says, look back at the faith of the Old Testament heroes. And more and more in our culture, I believe that we need to apprentice ourselves to heroes that have gone before, those that in the past have had faith. Because our our times that we live in are so crazy, so kind of nutso and out of control that we can feel like the world's falling apart. It's helpful to kind of have some perspective and look back and say, man, there's always been ups and downs in history and people have always found refuge in the Lord. And so we see that with these Old Testament heroes specifically. This week, we're gonna be looking at the transition from Jacob to Joseph and so the Hebrews 11 line is that they found faith as they were blessing and giving final instructions at their death. What I'm going to call the sermon today is that faith is a thriller. Faith is a thriller. Um, the, the basic definition of a thriller is a scary movie, okay? <laughs> that's, the, that's the basic definition. It's, there's some suspense. And sometimes I think that we believe faith is the, only the good part of the fairy tale, right? Right? like everything's awesome. When that's part of faith, right? We look forward to a future face-to-face with Jesus where everything is awesome. But there's ups and downs in our faith journey. And we see that really clearly in the life and the story of Joseph. And so this story goes from Genesis 37 through 50. So that's a lot of territory for us to cover in one day. I'm just gonna kind of skip through some of the highlights. Um, But I want you to understand that faith is suspenseful. Faith uh, carries ups and downs. It's a, it's a tough story. It's a story sometimes where we're on the edge of our seat, and the past have used the term a, a cliffhanger. We're kind of hanging on. We, we don't know what's going to happen next. We're sure of God, but we're not sure of the next thing that's going to go on. When I think of the word thriller, I think of Michael Jackson's video from 1983. Anybody saw that? Um, I was 10 years old when that came out, so that was a big deal, Right? Uh, music videos were a new thing, and this kind of took them to a whole new level because it was an actual like full-blown kind of story feeling in this music video. It's fascinating though, now looking back on it, you know, I thought of this word and I kind of Googled Thriller, Michael Jackson. I looked up the lyrics. Of course, I never knew the lyrics. You know, you just kind of sing along. You know, you don't really know what they're saying. And as I saw the lyrics, here, here's where he was going with the story. He was like, life is scary, And he was kind of mixing metaphors of watching a scary movie with a girlfriend, talking about the scariness of real life, blending that together, and then saying, hey, girlfriend, here's the answer. It's snuggling with me, and it's dancing and getting down. That's that's the answer to the scariness of life. Now, I don't want to say that those things aren't helpful, right? Like snuggling and music and dancing are helpful elements that the Lord has given us, but they are tokens of something much greater. She did a wedding last week. There was celebration. There was dancing. And I was remembering how Jesus repeatedly said that heaven is like the ultimate wedding party. It's the ultimate celebration. And so, man, maybe, maybe snuggling helps you with the scariness of life. Maybe getting down and dancing helps you get by with the, the scariness of life. But I want you to know that those are just reminders of something much greater that we have in the Lord. We have an ultimate peace an open, ultimate joy in him, and that's what we see in these characters. We see a, a scary story, a crazy story, a hard-to-follow-in-some-places stories. Um, so I want to start with chapter 37. I'm just going to read verses 29 through 36, So this kind of gives us the beginning of the scary Joseph story. So if you don't remember background, Joseph's brothers were very jealous of him. They wanted to murder him. At last minute, they decided to just sell him into slavery, and now We're gonna pick up the story where they have to cover up what they've done. So Genesis 37, verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? He's heartbroken because he wanted to save his brother's life. Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, the place of the dead. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. But then we've got, you know, the next scene about to happen. Meanwhile, the Midianites, the slave traders, had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. At the lowest point of his life, the story is saying, hang on, there's more, this is a cliffhanger, more things are going to happen. And that's really the up and down of the entire story of Joseph. Jacob sinks into a deep depression in this section of Genesis. We saw Jacob last week learning faith, getting the blessing of God, and now we see Jacob just cratering. And we see Joseph going through terrible things. Encourage you on your own time to go back and read all of these stories, soak up the stories, soak up the details of these stories. God is at work even in the, the crazy, scary ups and downs of life. And we see that clearly in these stories. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll try to unpack this in more detail. God, we thank you that you are at work even in the times of life that are scary and uncertain. We thank you that we can see this as we look back into the Old Testament, how you were always at work among your people, keeping your promises even when they didn't understand exactly what was going on. And God, we know that to be true today because we see that you've proven that once and for all through Jesus Christ. Jesus took our sins. Jesus conquered sin and death forever. And so we have this, this anchor for our souls, this bedrock that we can count on, that you are good even when things seem to be falling apart. So God, help us to develop a faith that enables us to see your goodness and your provision despite the ups and downs of life. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a simple outline this morning, and I'm going to kind of jump through primarily chapter 48 and 50. So I just kind of introduced the beginning of the story. Man, everything's falling apart. We're going to skip way to the end, okay? encourage you to go back and read the whole story in detail. Two years ago, we did a sermon series all the way through chapters thirty-seven through fifty. So, I recommend that as well if you just want to hear more of the details as we taught through that. You can find that on our podcast or on our website. Um, But here's the three parts for our outline: Faith matures in tragedy. Faith matures in tragedy. We prefer the mountaintop experiences, right? That's what we prefer, but our faith matures in the valley of death and the tragedies and the difficulties of life. Faith matures in tragedy. The second point is this, faith produces forgiveness. We see this lived out in Joseph's life. We see it lived out in many other lives as well and obviously uh, explicitly stated in the New Testament. Faith produces forgiveness. The third point is this, faith plans for God's future. Faith plans for God's future. Really great illustration of this are the burial plans of both Jacob and Joseph. This is a great case study, Because we see faith planning for God's future and we see them symbolizing their faith through their burial plans and yet they had different burial plans. And this is a beautiful case study for us as Christians. As Christians, we often wanna fall into methodolatry and that is we want everybody to agree to the same method of proclaiming the message of Jesus. And so Jacob and Joseph is a great case study of like, hey, they, they had different burial plans, but both of them were saying God can be trusted. God can be trusted. That's their message. So we see that in the end. So first point, faith matures in in tragedy. Faith matures in tragedy. We'll flip over and be primarily in chapter 48 towards the end of Genesis here. We'll see kind of the climax of the story, but just want to remind you that both Jacob and Joseph hit rock bottom repeatedly throughout this story. Here are some uh, kind of example texts on Jacob's side. Genesis thirty-seven, thirty-five. we just read this. All his daughters rose up to comfort him. All his sons rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Have you ever been in that place where you're in a rock bottom, people are coming around you, your small group, your family, your friends. You're like, There's, it's gonna be okay. God can make a way. God is with you. Count your blessings. And you're like, no, no, no. I'm gonna go to death morning. I'm gonna go down grieving. That's what Jacob says his father wept for Joseph. And then we jump down to Genesis 45, 26. It's another example. They told him Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. What happened when Jacob got the good news? I don't know if y'all remember this part of the story. It's good to read it uh, later on your own, but it says his heart became numb for he did not believe them. So finally, all the bad things that he had been lied about He'd been lied to about. All those bad things are now reversed, right? No, Joseph's actually alive. They're telling him his, it was just like he was numb. He's like, he couldn't comprehend it. Now, eventually God moved him to see what he was doing. God moved him through that tragedy to begin to understand that he was at work. And so this is where we pick up the story. He's finally moved to Egypt. He sees all the blessings that God is accomplishing through Joseph It's this incredible rags-to-riches story where Joseph is sold into slavery, and then he rises through the ranks just through his godliness and responsibility in the jail. He eventually gets more and more responsibility. God gives him visions. God works through him. God speaks through him. And God makes him the ruler of all of Egypt. And so in a time of great famine in the Middle East, Egypt, through the ministry of Joseph, is able to bless these other nations and is able specifically to save the people of God, to help make true the promises of God, to redeem these people, the 12 sons of Israel, so that their line can continue, so that the promises can be fulfilled. God is working through Joseph, starting out in the rock bottom, being betrayed, almost murdered by his brothers, now rising to the top. Jacob finally sees it, and now Jacob is about to die. That's where we're picking up the story. We're going to be in Genesis 48, verse 13 through 17. Genesis 48, starting in verse 13. Now, let's flip page here. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. What is the setup here? This is a very... uh, Legal, kind of like, imagine going to see a lawyer so that the will will be read. That's what the final deathbed blessing was like in the ancient Middle East. So was a very official, kind of, think judicial, think courtroom. And so here's the situation. Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to be blessed, to get the reading of the will, so to speak, from Jacob, his father. And so he puts the younger one on the left and the older one on the right, because the right hand of blessing is the primary, the law of the firstborn. We talked about the last couple of weeks. There's this law of the firstborn. He's the one that's supposed to get the rights. And this was very practical because it was like a, a chief or a prince continuing on the family business, right? We live in a cash society where everything's always sold off and divided up, right? Uh, but in this society, you would basically be passing on the family business or a plot of land. And so it always had to go to one person who would then be in charge as the chief and ruler of the family business to take care of the other brothers and sisters. And so this is just how it worked. It made sense. It was reasonable. Joseph lines them up in the proper position. Look at verse 14. He says, um, it's like right on the edge of the page here. It's confusing me. Verse 14, and Israel stretched out, this is Jacob, Jacob Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So you see this? Joseph lines up everything just right for this court proceeding to get the blessings, and what does Jacob Israel do? He crosses his hands. It's crazy, there's a, a famous painting from the 1500s, 1600s, Il, Ilguercino did this, and you see him crossing his hands. Uh, sorry, he's not wearing a shirt. You know, Jacob is old at this point. I love how they're wearing like Renaissance style outfits. I don't think they really dress like that, but you know, that's when, the, that's when this painting was done. And so you see him crossing his hands and you see Joseph like jumping to stop him, right? Why is it painted that way? Well, it's painted that way because that's what happens in the text, verse 15. And he blessed Joseph And he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. A displeased is a very mild word in the English for a much stronger word in the Hebrew. He was freaked out because Jacob, Israel, was doing the wrong thing by the conventions of their day. Now remember, God is doing this kind of thing all the time, right? God's always switching these things around to show us that it's by God's power and God's power alone that people will be saved. So he's always upending our cultural expectations to show that it's not the strength of man, but it's the strength of God that saves us. And so Jacob gets it, right? This is, this is an example. The author to Hebrews tells us this is Jacob's faith. At the end of Jacob's life, Jacob gets it. He sees now what God is up to. And so the author to Hebrews says that this is an example of Jacob's faith. Through the ups and downs, through... The high points of Jacob seeing the stairway to heaven and seeing that God is gonna bridge the gap and getting the blessing as he wrestles with God in the middle of the night, all these high points. And then he sinks to these low points of utter depression and feeling like God has taken everything from him and his life is falling apart. His sons are all dysfunctional and tearing each other to pieces. He thinks his favorite son, Joseph, has been killed. And now he comes back up and he's like, okay, I I see what God is doing. The author to Hebrews says, this is, this is faith at work when Jacob gives this blessing, but Joseph is confused by it. And this is a beautiful illustration, I think, for us, because we're all on different faith journeys, right? Joseph has been pretty much a hero throughout these stories. Joseph has been like a rock star of faith, and Joseph will end basically as a rock star of faith, but, but here again, he's confused. He's like, wait, 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 wait. This can't be right. This this can't be how God is at work. And he says, No, no. This this is how it's going to go down. So, verse eighteen. Joseph said to his father, "Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head." But his father refused and said, "I know, my son. I know he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." So he blessed them that day, saying, "By you, Israel will." pronounced blessings saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. So he gives these blessings as a sign of God's grace. God is always saying, you can't save yourself by the traditional way that businesses operate, by the traditional way that the firstborn should get the business. You can only be saved by God's hand of grace. That's the message that God is preaching as he continues to upend the law of the firstborn throughout Genesis. Talked about this again last week, but this is an ongoing message that God is telling, and he makes it really explicit in the New Testament. He talks about this in Romans 9 and other places. He says, no, this is to clarify that God's the one that saves. People don't save themselves. God saves people. And so the only way for us to get that message is he has to upend the strength of man. And so last week we quoted Deuteronomy 7. God's like, hey, nation of Israel, I saved you because you were puny and weak, so that the people around could see that God's a God of grace. We talked about how uh, the apostle Paul worked that into his philosophy of ministry. He's like, yeah, God gives us this salvation in jars of clay so it can be seen through our, our weakness. We're not perfect. We're frail. We're broken. And again, we said last week, we don't pursue sin because of that, right? He wants us to obey him. He wants us to do the right thing. But as we stumble and get back up and trip and fall and have to seek forgiveness, people see that God's grace is what saves us. We're saved by what God does, not by what we do. Um, When we preached two years ago through these Joseph stories, I talked about Il Gorsino, this Italian painter, uh, only had one good eye. And so he's called the squinter. That's what Il Gorsino means in Italian. Um, And people talk about, this is an illustration from the painting world, the incredible depth that he had in his paintings. It's amazing, right? He saw this depth and this emotional realism in his paintings, but he only had one good eye. I just thought, you know, isn't that funny? That's God's sense of humor again. This guy with bad eyes that paints such vivid, beautiful pictures. We don't see with our physical eyes when it comes to spiritual things. We have to see with the eyes of faith the Lord gives us his spirit so that we can see these truths. And that's what I'm praying for you and, and for me. Um, I don't remember this every day. I have to be reminded every day. I have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, help, help me see what you're doing. Help me see what you're up to so I can follow you. So faith matures us in tragedy. And I just want to recognize, I know some of you, this, this is a hard thing to hear because you're, you're like at the bottom right now. You're, you're at your worst. You're like, I don't, want, I don't want to hear that right now, Dave, right? Like I just I just want to be encouraged. Um, I want you to know that God loves you, that I am praying for you. You got brothers and sisters around you that are praying for you. And it's okay to share your just utter heartbreak with God. Psalm 13, go to Psalm 13. Might be a good one for you to memorize right now. Psalm 13 says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He goes on to finally end with praise. Yet I will praise you, Lord. I've seen that I can trust you. The Psalms give us this pattern again and again. Psalm 13 is nice because it's compact. It's short. It's just a few verses. But God, God can welcome your tragic heartbreak. You can, you can share that with him. Don't fall for the lie that Christianity is a religion where you gotta clean up your stuff and you can only talk to the Lord when the tears are wiped away already. Can, you can bring your tears to him. You can bring your anger to him. You can bring your heartbreak to him. My prayer is that we would be a praying people Meaning we would not just ask God for the things we want in the future, but we would bring all of our pain and our heartache to him. And we see that again and again in the Psalms. So a couple of specific applications. Number one, pray those Psalms. Share those things with the Lord in prayer. Name the hard things you're going through. Take those to the Lord. A second step would be to count your blessings, right? So we joke about the caricature of Christians jumping too quickly to counting your blessings before they've shared the tragedy and heartache with God. Start with the tragedy and heartache, but then after you've shared that with the Lord, count your blessings. Look at the good things. The hard things you've gone through, you can look back and say, man, there was, there was some, someone there who spoke grace and kindness and love, or there was something there where I saw a token of God's goodness. Count those blessings. Recount God's goodness even in the midst of the tragedy, share those things with the Lord, but also share them with other people. It's really important to talk these things through with Christian friends as, as well. We talk about gather, serve, and join. Joining a group is an important part of growing as a Christian. Where you, you you wrestle with the scriptures with other people, you pray together with other people, you you share like how you're struggling in your real life with others. You can do that with just one friend. You can join one of our official groups, but. Begin to talk through this stuff in your group. Don't, don't settle for a Bible study where everybody just kind of holds the text at arm's length and talks about what it means. That's an important part of it, but then wrestle with what it means in your life, right? Wrestle with what it means like, I'm struggling to obey this, or I'm struggling to believe God in this area, or I'm just wrestling with this heartache, right? Don't just talk about what the text means. We want to do that, but also then talk about what it means in your own life, your own tragedy, your own heartache. Uh, pray for one another. Join a group. We also talk about Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is a Monday night group. Um, it's focused on recovery. It's focused on particular hurts, habits, and hang-ups that people have. Celebrate Recovery is simply a organized or more structured form of small groups, where it's more structured around people really focusing on some of these heartaches or addictions that they're going through. So this is a, a, maybe a A a deeper way to to heal through some of these things. And then finally, Christian counseling. We can recommend Christian counselors to you. Uh, There's a good agency in the area called Pathways. Um, There are other options as well. Uh, But it's important to talk through these things with the Lord in prayer, but also with other human beings, brothers and sisters in Christ. And our faith will mature in tragedy. The second point is that faith produces forgiveness. So faith produces forgiveness. We see this in chapter 50, verse 15 through 21. Faith produces forgiveness. So remember, Joseph's brothers had betrayed him. They they wanted to murder him at the last minute. They just sold him into slavery. Uh, They had already been picking on him. It was already a dysfunctional family. It was already painful. So chapter 50, verse 15 through 21, we're kind of picking up the end of their lives together. And Jacob has now died. Jacob Israel has passed on. And they say this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, I'm just gonna pause there for a second. Best we can tell because of the way these guys have been operating, Jacob didn't actually say that. They're lying. They're just trying to cover their backsides, okay? Okay. Um, they're just trying to not get killed. And so they go on. And now, please forgive the transgression, transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph wept. He'd already forgiven them. If you read the stories, it's very clear when he saves them, he's already forgiven them, right? Like he's already, he's already spent a lot of his resources and emotional reserve to forgive and save and help them. He's already done that. And yet they're still not sure And spoke kindly to them. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of Joseph functioning as a symbol, a reminder. Sometimes we say a type of Jesus Christ. He says, I will provide for you. God is the judge. I will provide. I will show you comfort. I will show you kindness. And we see that most vividly expressed in Jesus Christ where we understand that the God of the universe owes us wrath, and yet he comes in human form and he he takes on all of our burdens as Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He loved people perfectly. He spoke up perfectly. He did the right thing. He healed people. He helped people. And yet he died a sacrificial death on the cross. The gospel is the good news that this story that Joseph embodied for his brothers can be embodied for all of us. This this is not just a blessing that Joseph's brothers got. It's a blessing that all of us can receive by faith. That the God of the universe would would take our sins upon himself. That Jesus would die for us and rise from the dead, proving that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. This is an incredible statement. It's, It's like hard to get everything that this means, I mean, just his, his statement alone, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I mean, this harkens back to the first point that God matures our faith in tragedy. Evil is still evil, and Christians want to be careful about not calling bad things good. Scripture's clear that evil is evil. We still, still call it evil and not assign it to God, but God is so big that he can turn evil even for good. Romans 8 talks about this as well. And again, this is hard this is hard for our brains to handle. We don't it's hard for us to assign, you know, philosophical clarity to all these things. We just have to trust God. Say, God, I, I trust that you're even bigger than these tragedies that we lived through. And as we entrust ourselves to a God that that's that is that big, that forgives us for our sin and our cosmic treason against Him, that transforms us into the kinds of people that that then can forgive others, right? So so we see this example in Joseph and we're like, man, that's beautiful. I wanna be like that. The only way you can be like that is if you receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ personally. Have you received that forgiveness yourself? There's a couple of different key texts in the New Testament that talk about this. In Colossians 3, it says, we should forgive each other the way Jesus forgave us, right? That's just like a rule, of being a follower of Jesus. Jesus forgave us, we should forgive other people. Matthew 18 is a little more scary. In Matthew 18, it's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. There, Jesus says that there are two different servants. One servant is is forgiven this incredible debt. He owes a lot of money. He's forgiven this incredible debt. It's forgiven. And then he goes and he tries to choke and kill this lesser servant who owes a lesser debt. What happens to that guy? Well, the one that's not being forgiven is unforgiven, quote unquote. Now, that can cause all kinds of scary thoughts in our head, like, wait, we can be forgiven by Jesus and then unforgiven? No, that's not how it works. I think what the parable is teaching is if you're not forgiving people, that shows that you have not reckoned with the forgiveness of Christ. If you've reckoned with the forgiveness of Christ, you will forgive other people. Now, again, some of you are, are like, man, Dave, you don't don't know what this person did to me. And so what I want you to understand is that that can be a process, that can be difficult and that can be painful. And so I think what we wanna start with is just looking back to Jesus. We look back to the cross and we look at what Jesus did for us. The perfect God of the universe who could do no wrong died for you and me. That's what gives us the strength to deal with the horrible abuses that we've gone through. And, and that doesn't mean that you invite those people back into your life either, right? I mean, this is, this is an unusual situation because Joseph had all power, right? So it's a little different for him to invite them back into his life. Uh, it, it might be different for you, right? Forgive, I say this a lot of times, sometimes forgiveness doesn't mean you, you give someone the keys to your house, right? It just means you say, I forgive you and I'm gonna pray for your good. And I'm gonna pray that God, saves you, transforms you, blesses you. Doesn't necessarily mean you entrust them with the keys to your house, right? So there's still boundaries that can be healthy in our lives to keep keep us safe. If someone's still a terrible person, you probably still want to keep them somewhat at arm's length. But you can take the Christian step as Colossians 3.13 commands of forgiving them. Starts with talking to God about it. You might want to communicate with them. Sometimes it's not safe to communicate with them. That might be writing a letter to them that's never sent. Uh, I I would pray through that case by case. I think it looks like different things in different situations based on your own safety. But we are to take the step of of giving that back to God. And so we've got this payment analogy. Um, I grabbed a picture of someone paying money. Um, This is often used in the New Testament to, to be a symbol of forgiveness, it's not the only symbol of forgiveness. Uh, I think it's one that Americans and British people like a lot because we're, we're very into money, right? We think about money a lot, but it is a biblical one. And so it's like we owe a debt and God has paid our debt for us. So in return, then we pay the debts that other people owe as well. Now, the difference with biblical forgiveness and sometimes our, our kind of soft cultural idea of forgiveness is that God actually paid for it right? Jesus actually paid the price for our sins. And so what that translates down to is he's ultimately the one that pays the price for everybody's sins, but the, I think what that means is it's going to cost us something, right? It's, it's not going to be easy to forgive people. It's gonna, we're going we're to pay something. It doesn't mean, oh, I don't care. We sweep it under the rug. It doesn't matter. It costs us something. It's something we have to wrestle with. We are called to forgive others. Okay, we need to move on to the third point. Faith plans for God's future. Faith plans for God's future. We'll read verses 22 through 26, and we'll end here. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. This was kind of the Egyptian symbol of the perfect life. Joseph had achieved that as a as a symbol of God's grace in that culture. Verse 23, And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. Another important symbol in the ancient Middle East, like getting to see uh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, right? That's a sign of blessing in your life. This is kind of like God stamping Joseph, saying, Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say about God. It says, The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own children. So I grabbed a picture of a mummy. Um, we don't know exactly what Joseph's coffin looked like, but he was embalmed and put in a coffin. So here we see Joseph being preserved Egyptian style, right? Joseph was a follower of Yahweh, so we would assume there was some kind of division of you know, his body not being uh, assigned to Osiris or ISIS or you know, Egyptian gods, but still there were some methods of how they did burial that, that he followed, So this is a beautiful case study here because we can look back earlier in Genesis, Jacob said, make sure you bury me in the promised land. That was Jacob's final instructions. So you got Jacob and Joseph in faith saying, bury me in a way that honors God's plans for the future. And so we have this beautiful principle of, you know what, we should make plans based on you can trust God. I trust what God is going to do. I trust that I'm going to see him face to face. I trust that God will keep his promises. And yet we have a case study here where they did it with different methods. Christians like to fight over methods. We like to fight over, you know, what time should the church service be and and what kind of clothing should we wear? And, And, you know, should we stand up when we take communion or sit down when we take communion? We fight so much over methods when we should be agreed on the principle of God can be trusted. And so we've got Jacob and Joseph both saying, God's gonna keep his promises. Jacob says, y'all take a big trip and bury me in the promised land. Joseph says, just make sure 400 years in the future when you go to the promised land, make sure you bring my mummy coffin with you, okay? And they did, right? It's in, uh, if you wanna look it up, it's Exodus 13. Moses brought the bones of Joseph into the promised land. It happened. They remembered. It was a sign. It was a token of their faith. So here's the thing. This can really annoy people at our church. And so I kind of want to, this is kind of like a sorry, not sorry thing here. Um, We're going to give a lot of freedom to worship in different ways, to study the Bible in different ways, to live out your faith in different ways. We're going to say the bedrock is you can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith in Jesus Christ means you now trust him. He's changed your heart, so you see him as trustworthy, so you're gonna now begin to follow him and live out the moral commands of the New Testament. We like to say that the New Testament is explicit about the moral framework. We're in a time of great moral confusion as a society, and we wanna say, I'm not as worried about what clothes you wear or whether you take communion standing up and sitting down or what kind of music you like, but I am worried that you obey Jesus. We want you to obey Jesus, but we're, we're just not gonna have fights over secondary cultural expressions of our faith. So we would say there are cultural expressions, two different burial plans, and then there's the moral implications of obeying Jesus and doing what he says. Those are two different categories. So we're gonna give a lot of freedom when it comes to tactics and culture, but we're gonna say we, got, we gotta obey Jesus. We gotta trust that what he says is true. We gotta say this word is true, we're gonna obey the moral implications of what he says to us in this book, we're gonna follow Jesus, we're gonna speak of Jesus, and then we're gonna give a lot of freedom to to live that out in different ways. Cultural creativity. We're one body with many parts. We come from many different cultures, many different backgrounds. And that's a way of saying, man, I appreciate my culture, I might celebrate this, this tradition, this food, whatever it is, and yet we all agree on Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one that unites us. That's where true unity is found. And we have to be careful because here's the thing, in our culture, because our culture is so fractured right now, more and more people are gonna be saying, well, the only way we can be unified is if we agree on absolutely everything, right? Because we just have this, this underlying anxiety because culture is just getting more and more divided. And we have to say, no, we agree on Jesus, we agree on his word, and then we got a lot of freedom beyond that. We have a lot of freedom beyond that. And that's gonna be a difficult thing for us to work out. Here's some simple applications for this. Faith plans for God's future, right? Faith looks forward to God keeping his promises. Um, so one, one easy application is plan a Christian funeral, right? It's good to start thinking about that now. How do Christians do funerals? Uh, Thessalonians is real clear that we do grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. And so a Christian funeral is one where Jesus is celebrated. I think it's really important that we honor the person. We celebrate the life. Matthew 5 says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And so what we do at a Christian funeral is we celebrate the life of that person. We are like, man, they were always hospitable. That reminds me of Jesus. I'm gonna praise my Father in heaven. Or man, they were, they were always hardworking and disciplined. That reminds me of God. I'm gonna praise my Father in heaven. Or they really loved people. They were really joyful. That reminds me of the Lord. I'm going to praise my father in heaven. That's, that's the pattern for a Christian funeral. And then a lot of other things are going to be different, right? Depending on your ethnic background, the region you grow up in, uh, when the death happens, right? But plan that your funeral would be something that testifies to God's goodness. Talk to your family and friends and say, yeah, I want, I want this song to be sung. I want this scripture to be read. I want Jesus to be celebrated at my funeral. That's In essence, what they're doing, Jacob, Joseph, they're saying, yeah, bury me in a way that says God can be trusted and God will be honored. Another thing that we can do to to plan on God fulfilling his plan for the future is to spend our resources on the spread of the gospel, right? And so those are all the calls we give to you to partner with the church, to support our missionaries. You can spend your money, Um, by supporting a missionary, supporting the church. You can spend your time going to visit one of our missionaries or serving on one of our ministry teams. Uh, You can just spend your own gifts. You have unique gifts and you can use them to encourage others in the faith. We spend our resources, right? We, We make plans to plan to see that God will continue and fulfill the promises that he's made. And so even in these burial plans of Jacob and Joseph, we see this pattern of, Christians make plans with their stuff to say, look at God. Look at what God has done. God can be trusted. So what are ways that you can use your stuff to point people to Jesus? Um, Finally, I would say we want to give our time to the people that God has put around us, right? We see these very formal things, these final blessings, deathbed conversations. Don't wait until you're on your deathbed. Start having those conversations now with the people you love. Have you shared your story of walking with Jesus, of learning faith through the ups and downs of life? Have you shared that story with your family? Have you shared that story uh, with your friends, with the people you work with? Begin to share those stories. We see that when Jacob's on his deathbed, he starts talking about, yeah, I saw God here and there. And you're like, yeah, Dave, but I didn't get a magical vision of God. But here's the thing, you have If you've heard the gospel proclaimed, you've seen God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Galatians says that if you've heard the preaching of the gospel, you've vividly seen Christ crucified. You've got a vision of God. God has appeared to you. It's called the gospel. It's the good news of a God who would give his life for you. Share that vision you've had with other people. Don't wait until your deathbed to share these things. Well, we'll wrap up here. Um, The big idea is that faith is a thriller, meaning it's a scary story. It's an up and down story. It's a story of suspense. And I joked that in Jackson's song, you know, his solution was snuggle up with me tight, right? We'll get down and enjoy some music and some dancing and we'll snuggle and, you know, maybe other things. And he was promising that romance and music was the solution to the scariness of life. And like I said, those those things can help, right? You know, ice cream can go a long way when you're having a hard day. There are blessings that God gives you that can encourage you. Ecclesiastes is clear about that, right? If we studied Ecclesiastes a few years ago, it's like, man, just enjoy the good things in life, right? But ultimately, ultimately, those things point to God. He's our true comfort. He is the one who snuggles us up tight in the gospel. He's the one who draws us into his family, who who saves us, who rejoices over us with the singing. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save you from any tragedy, from any terror. It says he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. The God of the universe is here to comfort you in Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you've clarified that for us in the gospel. Help us to see this great hope that we have. Help us to see you as the God who is near to us. As you promised repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, you will be among us. You will be our God. We will be your people. As you show us even more deeply in the New Testament, you are our father who delights in us. You love us. Help us to be quieted by your love, encouraged By your provision, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.